Our first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this he said he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Then suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Our second reading is from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and our Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, as Kaz read to us from the start of Acts, that Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's giving them in clear instructions for how to begin their mission to the world. And he promises to enable them, to empower them for this mission. And you could imagine how keen they would have been. They would have been champing at the bit to run out there and get on with things, you know. But he says, it's interesting, notice what he says. Basically, he says, don't start yet because you're going to fail. You won't have the power you need. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes to you from the Father. He's saying God's not going to let you down. He will send the Spirit and then they will be able to take the message to the ends of the world. They will be able to represent God faithfully and witness to his work in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, as we turn our attention to the opening chapter of Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica, um, we will see how this played out in in, in a real life situation, a real church plant situation. And we'll, from this, we'll see how it applies to us as well. And I've basically got two points to make. One is that the Holy Spirit brings power and conviction. And the second point is that the Holy Spirit brings joy. First of all, the Holy Spirit brings power and conviction. In Acts 17, it tells of Paul and uh, his companions, which included Silas, uh, going to the Greek city of Thessalonica. And Paul went to the synagogue to um, discuss theology and mainly to persuade the people there uh, that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had um, risen from the dead. Some of the Jews converted, as did some of the God-fearing Gentiles, it says, including some important women from the city. They converted. And these new Christians in Thessalonica were gathered around Paul and Silas and their companions, and formed a church community. So this was a church plant in Thessalonica. Now, Paul's ministry had really caused a huge stir uh, in the in the city, and a mob of angry and jealous Jews who didn't like what he was saying got together and rioted. Can you imagine preaching the gospel and then there being a riot? Well, they tried to get the new Christians who were accommodating Paul um, and his team, in trouble. They wanted to get them in trouble with the law, and they accused them of defying Caesar and promoting a different king, namely Jesus Christ. So the local Christians sent Paul and Silas away at night to a nearby city um, of Berea. But as we know from last week, church plants are worth suffering for. So the church plant in Thessalonica kept on meeting despite the riots, and um, this might seem foolish, but God's wisdom and strength prevailed. Sometime later, Paul wanted to know what was going on with his church that had, had started so well in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy uh, to go and um, meet with them and encourage them and also find out what was going on. And Timothy sent a letter back to Paul, basically giving a glowing report saying, despite all the suffering, they are going amazingly. This church plan is thriving. And so Paul was so excited um, that he was writing this letter um, to the church in Thessalonica, encouraging them, saying, I've heard so many good things and I've been praying for you. And wow, this is so good. So the, the letter opens, if you have a look at the start of the passage, 
by saying Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Silas and Timothy, who with Paul had played a key role uh, in the establishment and building up of this church, the three of them, so they basically so excited they wanted to sign, co-sign with Paul this letter that Paul was writing. And this is kind of how church plants are, isn't it? Like they are a group project. It's not just Paul who does it on his own. There might be a leader, but there are very key people who work to support the leader. And people who come perhaps a few months after the start or a year, few years later after the start of the church to really give it a boost. Um, and this is what Timothy had done. As well as Silas and Timothy, Acts 17 shows that there was a, another man called Jason who must have had a key role putting up Paul and Silas in his house and he must have exercised some kind of ministry in the ch- new church community. It's possible that the new church plant started in Jason's house. and There would have been others who were involved. In the initial church plant of our church, Mary Creek, we had people like like uh, Mark Jones and Christine Parrott and Nick Andreevsky and Anthea McCall and Andrew Davey and Angus McClay, as well as others who were part of the core team. We used to meet every Friday morning for breakfast at Anthea and Andrew's house. Um, I remember waking up for my Friday morning meeting at like six o'clock in the morning and going in there for the seven o'clock start. And, you know, it was uh, early rise, but it was really, really um, exciting times. Um, and I was the only staff member, but I had all this support from these people. And then once we got started, there were other key people, like um, key volunteers, like Luke Singleton. <coughs> Luke Singleton, who headed up the music initially as a volunteer, he was, um, you know, straight out of year twelve in his first year at uni, and I'd come in every every week to help me set up and lead the musicians. Um, and Christine Andreeski, who put her hand up to say, I'm going to lead the children's ministry. And she did that as a key volunteer for a whole year, um, making such a significant impact on our church, being able to take off um, at the start. And it wasn't until about a year later from our first launch date that Beck came as our, our second um, staff member and bringing such a big boost and a big um, significant input to the life of our church. Um, as our um, as our children's minister, so as you can see on, there were key team members who jumped on board, and perhaps you might be one of those future key team members who want want to get on board either the church plant or the the revitalization of the Gold Street congregation. Because you can remember, as I said last week, as we are working towards planting the new congregation, we'll be working towards revitalizing the Gold Street congregation. Well, Paul writes this, he says, to the the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Then he prays a prayer. And he prays in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. So, you know, Paul may not have been able to stay with them, but the ministry that he had with them continued through the ministry of prayer. Later in chapter 3, verse 10 of this letter, he says that he and Silas had been praying night and day as earnestly as possible in order to see you face to face and complete the things that are lacking in your faith. 
So the picture here is of Paul and Silas getting together always, continually, night and day, earnestly to pray for them. They know that in God's Holy Spirit power, they can grow in numbers and maturity. So that's what they're praying for. They're praying for God to work powerfully by His Spirit. Now the thing is, you know, if you've seen the um, Netflix show Unorthodox, um, which I, I've seen the first episode of and I'm keen to watch the rest, but the thing you'll really notice is how much religious Jews love to pray. They they pray as they walk into a room. They pray as they eat and drink. They pray morning, afternoon, and evening. And this kind of regular prayer life of an Orthodox Jew is sort of not that dissimilar to what Paul would have been accustomed to. Um, regularly praying. But the focus of his prayer was thanksgiving. Notice that rather than a long shopping list of requests, in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a statement of beliefs written in Heidelberg, Germany, um, in the time of the Reformation, it says that we need to pray because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. So if you're ever in doubt for why you, you should pray, here is a pretty big reason, and that is that it cultivates a spirit of thankfulness, a posture of thankfulness in you um, towards God. Even still to this day, um, I often find that when I pray about our church, it is that I, I find myself praying thank you prayers. I thank God for the unity and the joy that we have as a church congregation. I thank God for what he's provided for us. The, uh, the hall at Clifton Hill Primary, the finances, the people, the strong children and youth ministry, the gifted musicians, the talented and committed church council and wardens. I thank God for the new signs of life and transformation in people. I thank God for people becoming Christians and growing in their faith. Which is what Paul basically is thanking God for in this letter. Look at verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's remembering and he's thanking God for their ministry and their discipleship work and their labor and their endurance. They've been loyal to Christ in the faith face of uh, suffering and opposition. And he's thanking God for their faith, love, and hope. Um, the reformer John Calvin says that um, these three words, faith, hope, and love, are like the shortest elevator pitch definition of Christianity. Uh, Paul didn't say this to every church that he wrote to. He didn't have this kind of glowing sort of prayer towards every church. This was special to the church in Thessalonica. The report from Timothy was so glowing that Paul wanted to encourage them in this good news. Now, you might notice um, the emphasis on, on their work and their labor. You know, we're used to seeing Paul focus on faith rather than works. But with the church in Thessalonica, he's so confident of their faith that he doesn't need to worry that there's going to be an imbalance in their theology about this. There's going to be no risk of misunderstanding. He's quite happy to praise them for their good works. Paul phrases this balanced understanding in his letter to the Galatian church as 
faith working itself out in acts of love. And that's what the church in Thessalonica are doing. And here in this letter, in Thess- 1 Thessalonians, he, sa- he says a similar phrase, which is labor prompted by love. Or we, we now say in, in common language, a labor of love. They have worked hard, but they have not taken advantage of each other. Rather, they have shown love. And they're loving what they're doing. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The church in Thessalonica is not really the result of the human work of Paul and Silas or Timothy or of the congregation at Thessalonica. No, it's the result of the divine initiative of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who undeservedly grant grace and peace to the converts in Thessalonica. He chose them, it says. And it is the result of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And notice he says, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. He, he was not against using words. In fact, that was his main strategy. He just went from town to town, talking, teaching, preaching, evangelizing. But he was saying that the genuineness of his ministry, his talking ministry, his preaching word ministry, was proven by it being accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't compare his ministry with the um, what other r- random wandering philosophers were doing at the time. They'd roll up to a town and talk. But you wouldn't get... Um, that accompanied with Holy Spirit power. But when Paul rocked up, you did. These wandering philosophers used other methods like flattery to win people over and to build people up and build up their own fame. And in this respect, church plans have to be a bit careful that we're like, to, to make sure we are like Paul and his style of ministry and not like the wandering philosophers. It's easy when you're doing a new church plant to fall into the trap of using um, means that are not godly means to win people over. We could use shallow or superficial means like, you know, trying to promote your church as the coolest new thing in town or um, promising things that you can't deliver on like that if you become part of this church plant, your life is going to be forever perfect, you know. I know that sounds a bit um, ridiculous, but actually sometimes um, pastors and church planners and Christians can make that mistake, can oversell um, and promise things that aren't actually what we're supposed to be promising. Paul says, you know how genuine our ministry was because you saw God's power at work. By this he means they saw miracles and they saw the spoken word penetrating the hearts of people. His gospel message was not only a heard message, but also an experienced message. And this all occurred in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he clarifies what he means by power by saying the phrase deep conviction. 
So in other words, he's saying our gospel came to you not simply with the words, but also with power. By that I mean with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. When the Holy Spirit gives the apostles power as a church plan, it will result in much conviction. It results in a boldness and confidence with which they will present their message. In chapter 2, verse 2, he makes a similar point where he writes, We had courage in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in spite of great opposition. Courage, boldness, conviction. So this conviction, which we do see in Paul's preaching and is empowered by the Holy Spirit, makes his word ministry effective in the lives of the hearers. So just as Paul and Silas had been praying for God to work powerfully by his Holy Spirit in the church plan in Thessalonica, so too we are going to have to pray uh, like crazy and ask God for him to work powerfully, for him to perform miracles, for him to um, make our words uh, penetrate people's hearts. There's all kinds of things we're going to have to pray big time for. Um, I mean, one of the things that's just really basic is that we're going to need to pray for finance. Um, that is money to help us accommodate the increased costs of running two sites, um, increased staffing time. You know, I really would like us to aim for next year raising somewhere in the vicinity of hundred grand on top of our giving uh, through donations from individuals who are excited about this and want to get on board. Um, but also through um, applying for grants. Um, But I can tell you the thought of doing that freaks me out and makes me very nervous. But you can't do something like this without taking a risk and also getting very nervous. Um, It's part of the excitement and the thrill of doing a church planting that's something bold. We need courage. That's what we need. We need courage from the Holy Spirit. Deep conviction. We're going to need the Holy Spirit power to to inspire people to give. We're going to need Holy Spirit power to bring people to join the planting team. We're going to need Holy Spirit power to help with the the logistics along the way, for doors to be open, for um, people to say yes. We will need um, Holy Spirit power to find a new venue, to sort out issues with the diocese, to work out our new processes as we, we work differently. And then once the ministry has begun, we need Holy Spirit power to see people's lives changed as well. We want Spirit-empowered preaching and ministry. And this brings us to my last and smaller point, which is that the Holy Spirit brings joy. Paul continues to recount the ministry that occurred amongst him, and he writes in verses uh, 5b and 6, You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. The evidence of their genuine conversion is their experience of joy, which resulted from the Holy Spirit invading their lives. Now, as they were previously, um, as pagans, some of them were pagans. They would have had momentary glimpses of happiness, perhaps, but it mostly would have been a life of struggle and dissatisfaction in in paganism they had to win the love and the approval of their their various gods but when they came to christ and received the holy spirit they were filled with such a great joy that even in the midst of suffering from persecution they were joyful this paul says is evidence of their genuine conversion 
As far as Paul was concerned, the marker of genuine spirituality is that it came with the presence of joy in the lives of the believers. And the early church believed that even though it should expect suffering and not be surprised by suffering, yet the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives should mean that they are filled with great joy. As he writes in the letters, letter to the Galatians, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And we're actually going to do a whole series on joy in our Advent series coming up later on in December. The Spirit was giving them a taste of the life to come in eternity with Jesus. Later in chapter 5, Paul goes on to say that they should therefore rejoice always. I can say with confidence that church planting brings joy. It brings joy for the reason just discussed, because the Holy Spirit brings joy to the hearts of those who come to faith and who grow in their faith. And it brings joy because you get to experience God working powerfully through you and around you. God gives the joy as a kind of fuel to keep you going. And uh, and I have to say, I'm addicted to that joy. One of the reasons the first two years of a church plan is described often as a um, honeymoon period is because when it goes well, everyone is filled with joy. One of the ways this joy is, is expressed is it's kind of, it was remarkable. It was uh, astounding to me to observe um, that, Everyone's just willing to jump on board straight in the early years, you know, with no questions. And I, I would not, not even have to say anything or ask anything and somebody would just start doing something, whether it be on the Sunday service or maybe somebody would start a community group without me even asking them to. And that sounds a little bit chaotic, but actually there's a little bit of um, chaos at the start of a church plant and there's something exciting about that and energizing about that when people are all having a, a unified and common goal of making this work. So I remember, you know, for the first two years or so, um, people were so enthusiastic. We, we had things like all the musicians would just play every week because um, we didn't have enough musicians to have a roster. So they just came back, um, you know, Hamish and Laura and Campbell and Cara, you know, they just came back week after week, Luke and um, Toby, you know, week after week. Um, playing and Tom Hodson, I remember just how how incredible. I remember and- Andrea and Anthea just made themselves the morning tea team and did it every week for I think at least six months. It might have even gone even longer than that. They just did it with a smile on their face because their enthusiasm was fueled by the joy everyone felt at being part of a new church. And then when we saw lots of people sign up and including people from non-church backgrounds and people who are on the fringe of the church and then people growing maturity of faith and people becoming Christians. There's lots of joy and the joy increases. That's basically what happened in Thessalonica. Paul said they became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia and all over the region. They, as a church, loved having Paul and Silas and Timothy and so much that they also spoke fondly of them to others. People from all around the region have been blown away by how incredibly the new converts in this church plant had turned from pagan idol worship as they served God and lived in, in anticipation of the return of their Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we at Mary Creek Anglican are probably not as famous in the region uh, as they were, 
Um, nevertheless, I'm quietly pleased, humbly pleased, I should say, that we have a good reputation as being a healthy church, a caring church, a creative church, a church where God is working. We can thank God that the Holy Spirit has given us power and conviction and brought us joy. So let's pray as we work towards our new church plant that our humble but good reputation will grow exponentially and ultimately point people to Christ.